Welcome to the Why Did I Get Cancer podcast. I'm Deborah Herlax Enos, a small town girl turned TV nutritionist and healthy living expert. I design health programs for the average guy or gal, including those average guys named Metallica. On September 1st, 2020, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I asked every oncologist the same question, why did I get cancer? But none of my doctors had good answers for me. I wanted answers and that's why I started this podcast. I wanna help you to lower your cancer risk and provide self-care tips for those in the battle. I'm getting answers and I wanna share them with you. I had a huge takeaway in today's episode with Dr. Kelly Turner. She talks about the power of intuition when it comes to radical remission and radical healing from diseases like cancer. She said she was shocked when she looked at the 10 healing factors. She knew that eating better and taking supplements and exercise would all be important components to becoming well again, but she said she was absolutely blown away by how much intuition played a role in healing. And she's even found research, really great double-blind studies to back it up. So listen to today's episode to get more of my conversation with Dr. Kelly Turner and find out how intuition can actually help you heal. Today's podcast guest, Dr. Kelly Turner, has spent 15 years researching radical remission. And, you know, a lot of us might think of this as spontaneous healing or, oh my gosh, there was a miracle um, in a cancer patient. And Dr. Turner, you've spent 15 years and 1,500 people studying this can I call it a phenomenon? Sure. I think it's a phenomenon. I think it's a phenomenon that's very exciting to study. So sure, go ahead. Can you explain to us what's the difference between a radical remission and a spontaneous healing? Well, m- medical doctors still refer to what I call radical remissions as spontaneous remissions. So you might hear someone in the medical field call what we're talking about today a spontaneous remission. I have come to hate that word spontaneous because it does not describe the Mm. phenomenon that I've now been studying for 15 years. So spontaneous, the word implies that something's very quick and it happened without cause. So perhaps it was just luck, perhaps it was a miracle from God, perhaps it was an accident, but there was nothing that the person did. It just spontaneously happened. Right. And usually quickly. So that's what that word implies. And the reason that is so inaccurate for the phenomenon of cancer healing that I study is because on average, it takes radical remission survivors a year and a half to go from stage four to remission. So there's nothing overnight about these healings. Nothing overnight. Nothing overnight about them. And the other distinction is that it's not without any cause. It's not like they're not doing anything. It's not like they go to bed one night with stage four cancer and wake up the next night having done nothing Mm -hmm. and are, you know, in remission. Instead, what I have found through the research is that they are doing so many things to try to get well. And they're doing much more than 10 things. But when I look at what is everyone doing, what are all 1,500 of these people doing, they are all doing these 10 common things. Now, some of them do more than those 10, but... Mm -hmm. The, the basic core group is these 10 healing factors. And so they are working really hard to transform nearly every aspect of their lives. And so to call that spontaneous really discredits the hard work and the transformation right. that they're putting into their lives. Right. So it's almost as if you're calling, you know, Oprah an overnight success. Right. You're not looking at the 20 years she spent 
honing her craft. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the reason I think medical doctors have been calling it spontaneous remission for the past, you know, 130 years now, right? Ever since medical journals began to be published in the late 1890s, there were cases of spontaneous remission. So spontaneous remission of cancer has been around not only since the beginning of medical journals, but all the way back to, you know, in the 1300s, one of the Catholic saints, the Catholic saint of healing, um, had a, you know, sudden sort of sudden, I wouldn't say overnight, but an unexpected healing of the tumor in his leg. So for as long as, and, and we also have examples of, of spontaneous remission in the papyrus evers, right? So these are the Egyptian doctors writing about how there was a tumor growing out of someone's back and then the person developed a fever. And then a few days later, the tumor started to recede. So literally since the beginning of recorded history, we have uh, case reports of spontaneous remission. So these have been happening mm-hmm. since the beginning of medical practice, and they continue to happen. And no one had really dug into them. You know, doctors, because these people weren't healing through the treatments that doctors were offering, right? Most of the mm-hmm. time, people are sent home on hospice care. So the doctors have done everything they can. And first of all, I always like to say in every interview, I am not against doctors. I am not against Western medicine. I'm not against chemo, surgery, or radiation. But I do think it's worthy of studying these cases that no one else was studying. Because for someone to turn around stage four cancer after being sent home to die, that's pretty incredible, right? And if we're trying to win this war on cancer, we really should talk to these people who've won. They've won against all odds. And and again, I think the reason that doctors just labeled it spontaneous is because it wasn't due to chemo, surgery, or radiation. So these people came back to their office and they're like, oh, well, that was... I don't know how to explain that. I'm going to call it spontaneous. <laughs> Lucky you. Wow. Yeah. So spontaneous doesn't even begin to cover what's going on here because you're right. Spontaneous overnight. And these people have worked really hard to, to feel better. Right. They are changing 10 major aspects of their of their lives, both, both physically and mental, emotionally, spiritually. And so, you know, what I hear from radical mission survivors is, Dr. Turner, you wouldn't recognize me if you hadn't met me before I had cancer or when I was going through that cancer treatment. I am a completely different person. That's what they tell me. They say, not only do I eat differently and exercise at all and before I didn't, um, and I'm taking herbs and supplements that I never used to, but my whole personality is different because of the mental, emotional, spiritual changes they made. So I think calling it spontaneous just really discounts that beautiful transformation that they've made. Because cancer can be, or any chronic disease, can be transformative. Yeah. And I know just in my own cancer journey, I'm a very different person today than I was when I was diagnosed in September of 2020. And I can actually now say, I'm grateful for cancer because I love me a lot more than I used to love me two years ago. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, I I personally try to stay away from the words of ever putting the words into someone's mouth that cancer should be viewed as a gift because um, that, that's a lot to put on someone. And, and of course I'm biased, right? I'm talking to the people who've used these 10 factors and it worked for them. So they've healed. So it's easy for them to say, you know, looking back, this has been a very positive experience because despite its hardships, I appreciate who I am now. And I would have never right. made those changes without that, that big push, that big diagnosis. So I do hear what you're saying, that appreciation in hindsight of, wow, I like my life better now 
than it was before. And I like the changes I made to get my body back into balance and back into health. Um, I definitely hear that a lot. But again, I'm there's a researcher bias here in that I'm talking to the survivors, right? You're right. You're right. And when you're in the middle of that battle and you're doing chemo or radiation, or in my case, lots of surgeries, it is hard to look at it as a gift. But of course, looking back, it's like, oh my gosh, that was such a gift. <laughs> but Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Do you so, want to say more about that? How, I mean, do you do you ever share with your listeners how it was a gift? I do. I do. And I would say probably the biggest gift cancer has given me is that um, I spent my entire life um, looking um, to other people to validate me, people-pleasing, trying to be good enough. And now I'm not because I realized part of my journey was I was just exhausted by playing a role of people pleaser. And God's never called me to be a people pleaser. And, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress. And you're constantly on. And now I'm just not on anymore. And it's really wonderful to just be me and not playing a role. Oh, that's lovely. That's that's a beautiful lesson, life lesson to learn. It really is. And I love that um, in the Bible that um, we're called to be peacemakers, but not peacekeepers. And there's a huge distinction between the two. Peacemaker is, oh, Dr. Turner, you know, let's go have lunch. Let's talk about some issues, whatever. Peacekeeper is I've got to do whatever I can to make you happy so that you love me. And that is a shift. I'm just not willing to work anymore. Beautiful. Yeah. And also when you're when you're stuck in a people pleasing role, you're at the whimsy of other people's personalities and approval, right? Like you can't control whether you're gonna please them, right? You can do everything you can, but ultimately they may not be pleased. And just having ownership and responsibility to yourself is you can please yourself because you know what you want and you know what That's you need. Right. So it's like a guarantee, right? It's like guaranteed happiness because <laughs> you're like, well, what would be pleasing for me today is, you know, take a break and not do all these to-dos and go for a walk, right? That's and right. that's a guarantee that you will be pleased. That's exactly right. And and at the end of the day, I can only control my reactions and what I do with those. So I'm going to focus on pleasing me. And by pleasing me, I please lots of other people in spite of, you know, me not playing that role anymore because I'm just me and I just want to do good, but it doesn't drive my interactions with people anymore. Like I don't have to not tell you my truth so that you'll like me. Oh, that's a very deep lesson. Yeah. It's it's almost like when you're saying a peacemaker, you're making peace in yourself. Mm-hmm. The, the job is not to make peace in the world or make peace with your children or make peace with this fighting group of people that it's like, well, how can I just make peace within myself and then emanate it? Exactly right. That that can also change the world. If you're just can, can. someone walking around emanating peace and kindness and compassion, that's pretty good too. It is. And that kind of peace is contagious to others. And I love that. So yeah, work on my peace first and then people just absorb it. Have you ever cooked with bison? 
I absolutely love the taste of bison. And basically, it's a replacement for ground beef. Not that I have anything against ground beef. One of the things I love about bison is it's got higher levels of B12. It's got higher levels of zinc, iron, selenium. It's really nutrient dense, and it actually has more omega-3 fatty acids than beef. I'm always trying to get more omega-3 fatty acids. I also love that it contains conjugated linoleic acid. Translation, what that means is it's got some anti-inflammatory properties, and you know I'm all about trying to lower my levels of inflammation. I'm always telling my friends and family to use more bison. You cook it up just like you do ground beef. Now, it does have lower fat levels, so you're going to have to maybe just not cook it as long and, and really keep a better eye on it if you're making burgers. But in my efforts to try to get more people to eat bison, I reached out to my friends at ButcherBox and I asked them, can you give my community free bison for a year? And I got to tell you, they did think about it for a couple of days, but then they came back and they said, we will do this for you. They're not doing it for anybody else. So go to butcherbox.com forward slash Enos, then use the code Enos. I know that is a lot of the word Enos. And you're going to get free bison for a year and $20 off of your first box. I honestly don't know how long this offer is going to last. So I really encourage you to sign up today. Start using bison. It tastes exactly like beef, but I honestly think it's got a little bit of a stronger flavor. And so I love using it in tacos. I make burgers with it. I crumble it over salads. So again, go to butcherbox.com forward slash Enos. Use the code Enos for $20 off your first box and free bison for a year. It's going to be an awesome summer. I love that you've discovered 10 elements and some of them are pretty basic. Nutrition, supplements. Um, so there's, there's lots of things I've already been doing and I'm sure a lot of my listeners have too. But out of the 10 elements that, that you've seen a pattern, which element was the most surprising for you? For sure, the most surprising of the 10 common healing factors, you know, among radical mission survivors, for me personally, the most shocking one was intuition because it seemed so unscientific. Mm. And I was looking for things I could pinpoint. Um, you know, I was coming from my master's degree in counseling. So obviously, it, you know, it was natural for me to ask these people, what do you think you healed? Tell me, tell me everything. I'm here to listen, right? Like I'd literally been trained in how to be a good listener. And so nothing was off the table. And I literally would say to them, I'd say, tell me everything that you think contributed to your healing. And by the way, nothing's too crazy to say. And as a result, I heard some pretty kooky things, um, you oh, know, kooky in my opinion. Um, but I kept hearing this idea of following your intuition over and over again in every single interview. And, you know, I think by the 10th interview, I was like, wow, this is really shaping up. I expected diet. I expected herbs and supplements. I expected reducing stress, right? I didn't expect people to say, I just had this really strong gut feeling that I needed to call my college roommate who I hadn't spoken to in 10 years. And so I called her and she knows this incredible integrative oncologist who she hooked me up with. And I know that's why I was led on a path of healing. And wow. I, you know, I kept hearing things like that over and over again, or people would say, I heard this voice in my head, but it was a very calm, still voice. And it just said, you know, X, Y, Z. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, here I am, this this PhD uh, student from UC Berkeley, writing down like, people are hearing voices. <laughs> and it, it was scary for me to have to, you know, go back to my professors and say, you know, by the way, one of the most common healing factors or something that they all did was listen to this intuitive voice or these intuitive feelings. Not blindly, they weren't following them blindly, but they were, for many people, hearing them for the first time Mm -hmm. and taking note of them and bringing whatever those impulses or insights were into the fold, right? Into the decision-making process. So I was certainly surprised to hear that over and over again. It felt nerve-wracking for me to have to report it in my dissertation. But, and probably because of that nervousness, I did an even deeper dive into the research behind it. I said, well, is there any scientific validity to this? And there is. And that was a, that was like a beautiful, unexpected surprise of my dissertation research was, you know, I was, I was forced with this data that was emerging, right? This, these 10 factors, one of which was intuition, which made me uncomfortable. And so then I, you know, to cope with that feeling of discomfort, I did a deep dive into the research behind intuition. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that there is a decent amount of valid randomized controlled research that's been done on these intuitive hunches. And, you know, for example, probably the most famous one is the Iowa card study. This was a study done at the University of Iowa, and they were just having people flip over decks of cards, right? Playing cards, but they, they'd hooked up their bodies to sensors. And mm. what, the, what the subjects of the study didn't know is that the decks were rigged, that one, one deck, it was like a gambling, it's, it was like a gambling game. And one of the decks was gonna lead to very big wins, but also big losses. And the other deck was gonna lead to slow and steady wins. And it took only 10 cards for their bodies to know which deck was safe. And they did this by measuring the sweat glands on the palms of their hands and their heart rate variability. Oh my So the researchers had this data, you know, coming into the back room and they were like, oh, wow, look at that. Her hands already know which deck is safe and which is dangerous. And then they started asking the subjects like at 20 cards, they're like, do you know, do you know what's going on in this game yet? And they're like, nope. It took them on average 80 cards for the subjects to be able to say with their minds, with their words, what was going on. Oh, that deck's rigged and that one's not, you know? But the bodies knew after 10 cards and the frontal cortex didn't know. Um, so what that tells us and what brain res- researchers have found is that we really have two, two parts of our brain. We have the frontal cortex, which makes our to-do lists and you know um, plans ahead for the future and is very practical and right. looks at cause and effect. And it's just very rational, right? The, the, the frontal cortex, but the very back of our brain, which is called the reptilian brain, because it's that ancient, right? Um, that part of our brain, right, right by the cerebellum in the back, right above your spinal cord, that is the part of your brain that's responsible for survival. And it is in charge of sending your body survival instincts and survival messages. And when cancer patients describe getting diagnosed, they say, I couldn't think, I couldn't hear the doctor anymore. I just, everything sort of got fuzzy and I just had this pounding in my heart and I had this voice in my head that said, call my college roommate. (laughs) And what I realized in these interviews with these incredible survivors is that cancer is a death threat to them. Cancer, the words you have cancer 
that is a threat to someone's survival in our culture, right? In our culture at the moment, the words you have cancer is a threat to your survival. And so it makes sense that the blood would, would rush to the back of your brain, which is the part responsible for survival and start sending you instant messages, right? And the, the instant messages come through as like a voice. They come through uh, gut feelings because we have 100 million neurons in our, the linings of our gut. And so your body starts talking to you in these new ways. And that that was surprising to find in my research. But now that I know that those new ways of speaking to us only kick in when your lives are threatened, then it suddenly made sense. Okay. I was like, oh, okay, makes sense. These None of these people had heard voices before, right? These aren't psychiatric patients. They started hearing a voice because now their lives are threatened. And that voice is just the back part of your brain talking to you. Does that make sense? Okay. It absolutely makes sense. And I can see why this was challenging to bring to you professors at UC Berkeley. I'm hearing voices. Or yes. <laughs> yeah, my, my subjects say they're all hearing voices. Right, right. You're right. It seems a little woo-woo, but I believe in that. And I believe in the power of intuition and just listening to that still small voice inside. And I can imagine it'd be hard for some people to act on it. it certainly. Um, you know, the way that some people described it was that they heard this voice and at first they, they their, the front of their mind kicked in and was like, no, you can't do that. You know, you can't delay this chemotherapy by two weeks to call your friend from college, you know. Um, the front of the brain started having this, you know, mm-hmm. rational argument with whatever the voice was saying. But for most right. people that I've studied, they say they said that that intuitive voice just kept getting louder and louder and louder, and the feelings in their gut kept getting stronger and more mm-hmm. uncomfortable. That at some point they were just like, "I'm so uncomfortable. These feelings in my gut are making me feel so scared and so nauseous. I just need to pick up the phone and call my college roommate. I'm just going to do it, you know." And what I find when you do listen to that still small voice, the more you listen the more you're obedient to it, you know, and the more you, you know, you start to make those phone calls because it it works out. I mean, it just seems like that reptilian brain is correct. It's trying to guide you and we're trying to talk ourselves out of it with common sense. Right, right. And again, you know, I, I'm not a medical doctor, so I don't give any medical advice, but right, certainly right. radical remission survivors aren't just following this voice blindly and jumping off cliffs or something, but right. they are... Being open to it and being um, allowing of it for the first time in their lives. And so they stay open, they stay curious, they make the call and they just see what comes of it. They're, they're, not, com- they're not committing to anything else. They're like, well, okay, let me just follow this hunch. And when you go back to the studies like the Iowa CART study and you realize the body knew the path to safety, 70 yes. cards before the person's frontal cortex caught up to it. That right. That gives me at least a little bit of scientific evidence for why, okay, I had this intuitive dream last night and, uh, you know, it's tell the dream, you know, showed me doing, you know, this activity. So maybe I should sign up for a class of that, you know, or maybe I should mm-hmm. look into that. Um, following on these hunches before your brain understands why it might be a good idea is something that radical mission survivors became more and more open to because it kept leading to good things. It kept leading to paths of safety, right? Okay. So um, again, I'm not, I'm not telling everyone to just listen to all the voices in their head, but you know, and s- some of the people that I interviewed who consider themselves uh, religious and define themselves as religious, 
for them, it wasn't their own voice. It was, you know, the voice of Jesus or the voice of Muhammad or the voice of God um, or the Holy Spirit speaking to them. So, you know, people defined it or labeled it in different ways, but it was always a calming voice or feeling or insight that was reassuring as opposed to something that made you scared, if that makes sense. Right. And I can see that out of the the 10 that you've discovered, that I can understand why this would be the most surprising because it does seem a little pie in the sky. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. But I love that there's been research. Yeah, that was, that was very reassuring to me. Right. And, you know, in my two books, Radical Mission and Radical Hope, I specifically, for all the chapters, um, I put in... Mm-hmm citations, right? So the back of my books are filled with all the studies. And that's because I wanted people to know that there really is some incredible scientific research behind these lifestyle changes. And to know that with 10, I won't say simple lifestyle changes, because, you know, releasing all your past trauma or switching from the standard American diet to, you know, a vegetable rich diet isn't necessarily simple. But these are 10 changes that you can make in your life on your own. And they can lead to an incredible shift in your immune profile. For some people, that shift in the immune system is so strong that it allows their immune system to reverse cancer. And that's inspiring for me and gives me hope to know that there are 10 things we can all do, many of them, the majority of which are free, to greatly enhance our immune system and that there's research behind it showing that yes, you know, six weeks of a, of a stress reduction course does lead to an increase in um, white blood cells, which is very important when you're trying to recover from an illness. Um, right. Really, really a lot of studies there to, to make you feel safe in trusting that these lifestyle changes will lead to an immune boost. And, you know, none of these lifestyle changes are going to hurt you. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's a pretty low risk situation to pick up your book <laughs> about these 10 different elements that you can incorporate. And it's not just about cancer. It's about, you know, prevention of other chronic diseases and inflammation. I mean, this these 10 lifestyle changes can make a big difference, which leads me to my next question. Um, I asked you about the most surprising element, but do you ha- are there any of the elements that seemed more foundational out of the 10? Well, radical remission survivors do these 10 healing factors in different orders. Um, So, Mm -hmm. and in my two books, I put them in different orders on purpose, right? I didn't list them in the same order in the second book as the, as the first book. And I, and with the docuseries as well, I told them in a different order. That's because I just want to keep reminding people, we don't know yet from a research Mm -hmm. standpoint, the order in which you quote unquote should do these 10 healing factors. So I'm just going to keep sharing them in a different order. That being said, if you just look at the list of of these 10 common healing factors, there are three that I consider pretty foundational in the sense that if you do those first, the other seven are a lot easier, right? So one of them is discovering your strong reasons for living. So Mm -hmm. a common thread among radical mission survivors is identifying why they want to still keep living in this body. Why do they want to still keep living on this earth? What are their reasons for living, not why are they terrified of death? Why are they afraid of something that might end and just, you know, erase your existence forever? That's different. 
What I'm talking about is radical remission survivors focusing on what do they want to do? What do they want to keep experiencing here on earth? Their reasons for living. So that's pretty foundational because if you know why you want to keep being here, then changing your diet is a lot less of a chore. So true. The other foundational ones, the other two that I like to bring up are the next one is empowerment. So finding your sense of power and agency. Radical remission survivors all make a move from some level of passivity to being more empowered, right? So some people, it's very extreme. They go from being a very passive patient. Yes, doctor. Okay, I'll do whatever you want. Um, I'll do whatever you say. I've tried everything. Yes, yes, yes. I'm not in charge here. I just do what you tell me, right? So that's a a very extreme version of being passive. Um, And not all radical commission survivors start at that level. But, you know, the the gentleman that is featured in my docuseries in the first episode, Shin Teriyama, he's also, um, his healing story is described in Radical Remission, my book. He was a Japanese businessman diagnosed with, at first, um, kidney cancer that then eventually became stage four kidney cancer and it spread to his lungs and his intestines. So he, he did everything. Once they figured out what was going on, it took them a few years to figure out what was even wrong with him. Then he did everything they said. He had surgery. He had a kidney removed. He had um, chemotherapy inpatient in the hospital and he had radiation. So he just was saying, yep, okay, whatever, whatever you say, I'll do. Unfortunately, that didn't work to heal his cancer. So he was sent home on the equivalent of Japanese hospice care. And at that point, his doctor said, you have three months to live. And he absolutely accepted that. He, as as always, as, every, as he had been before, he just said, yes, doctor, I get it, I understand. So he accepted that fact uh, or that prognosis as fact. As a result of that, his emotions shifted. And every day that he woke up, even though he was in tremendous pain and in a wheelchair, he was grateful. He said, oh my gosh, I'm still alive. I'm here. And so he his shift from being completely passive to being active started with gratitude. And then that gratitude turned into asking his wife, will you take me on my wheelchair up? I really want to watch the sunrise. I want to greet this new day that I've been given. So then he started watching the sunrise every morning. Then he asked for better tasting water. He wanted filtered mineral water because the water from the taps was tasting awful to his, you know, chemo mouth. And he just kind of like feeling around in the dark, he started making these changes, not because he thought they would cure him. He absolutely thought he was going to die within three months. They just were going to make this day a little better. And he started off just being so grateful for that day. So he really moved from being completely passive to then asking for the water, asking for the the, the wheelchair push up to sunrise, asking for time to do meditation while his, his wife watched the kids, asking for uh, macrobiotic meals. And he just sort of very intuitively thought, what sounds good to me right now? What, you know, what's going to taste good? What's going to feel good in this body? He started playing the cello again, his favorite instrument that he hadn't played in 20 years, just because he missed it. And he said, well, I'm going to die. I might as well play the cello for a few hours today. Um, so that's an example of someone, and you can see his story, you know, you can meet this, this incredible man in the docuseries. Um, but he went from being passive to being empowered. And three years later, he walked into his Japanese doctor's office and they said, what are you doing here? How are you even alive? And then they gave him a scan and he had no evidence of disease. By, by living in complete gratitude, 
And choosing, making choices every day to just live his best life is basically what you're saying. Yes. Which he figured was limited, right? Like when he got to that three-month mark, he was like, oh, well, it's been three months, but I feel as good as I did yesterday. So I'm going to play a little more cello today because I really like that. For us, though, Dr. Turner, you know, burn the special candle, you know, wear the, you know, beautiful lingerie or the, you know, the things you put on a shelf, just go for it. Right, right. Because he really did accept his doctor's prognosis. I will die in three months. And so every day was a gift. Every day was something that that he figured was not guaranteed. And he lived from that place of daily surprise and gratitude that he had been gifted another day with his wife and children. And, you know, he's got like eight grandkids now. He's 85. He just celebrated his 50th wedding anniversary. I mean, it's a really incredible, beautiful story of healing. So inspirational. Um, Yeah. Um, And the third foundational healing factor is social support. And the reason I call that foundational is because, you know, both I've both witnessed and we also know from the research that cancer patients who have stronger networks networks of social support and feel less lonely and feel more loved live significantly longer, in some studies up to twice as long. So this idea of um, gathering your social support first, early on, you know, and however that works for you, you know, some people actually choose not to share their diagnosis with the whole world. Some just share their diagnosis with a few close friends, but whatever social support means to you, um, I do, I do notice that radical mission survivors tend to ask for the help sooner rather than later. Okay. And I can see, I mean, my social network was so important during my journey from bringing me food to flowers to just praying, you know, praying for me. Yeah, it really made just such a huge difference. Absolutely. Tune in for part two of my conversation with Dr. Turner. Thank you for joining me today on the Why Did I Get Cancer podcast. I've got my shopping guide for all of my cancer self-care items in the show notes, along with information about today's guest and our show sponsors. And don't forget to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. Keep in mind, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a gal that got diagnosed with cancer and wanted answers. If you need medical advice, please be sure to consult with a medical professional. And thank you for listening.